And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. In all the chaos and confusion of our times, we can take solace from the fact that each day that passes is one day closer to the end of the Vatican II religion. Greetings and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Trapcast number 26, the Novos Ordo Watch podcast that is not more Catholic than the Pope, as some may think, only more Catholic than the anti-Pope. Accept no imitations. Well, folks, I'm sure you've noticed that everything is getting crazier, faster, and more obvious by the day. Every day it is a challenge to get through the barrage of news and latest developments in the Vatican II Church, figure out what's actually significant enough to mention or analyze and critique. And then when you've finally decided that you're going to focus on this topic or that news item, then boom, six other big stories pop up that demand your immediate attention, and then everything gets reshuffled and you're back to square one. And that's what's been happening, and that explains why, at this point, I still haven't covered, for example, the conference in Rome just ahead of the Amazon Synod in October that a number of semi-traditionalist big shots spoke at and uh, tried to once again justify their false opposition to Francis and the whole Vatican II religion. Although that is still in the works, at least in theory, so as soon as there is enough time, that's going to happen. Now, I said false opposition. Of course, I don't mean to imply that everyone in it is somehow of bad will, malicious, evil, or whatever. Not at all. Many people are caught up in it by mistake, but that doesn't make it any less of a false opposition. By false opposition, I mean those people and organizations that resist the Vatican II religion in some fashion, but ultimately always recognize the hierarchy from which that religion comes as the legitimate Catholic hierarchy, thereby undercutting all of their resistance. And that's exactly why they can never win, so to speak. We live in a time of great deception, and it's very important, therefore, to understand that if we want to prevent or escape such deception, we can't let ourselves be swayed by emotional considerations. 
What I mean is that so often people will determine their theological position by what they feel rather than what they understand. So, for instance, they'll say they can't believe that the new Mass is invalid or displeasing to God because they know so many good Catholics who go there and they live holy lives and there's no way that God would allow them to be so deceived. Or that so-and-so is a really great and holy priest or bishop who's provided such good guidance to me, and he believes Francis is Pope, so that's why I believe Francis is Pope, too. That kind of emotional false reasoning is a recipe for disaster. You're just asking to be deceived. Let's remember the warning our blessed Lord gave us in Matthew 24, verses 24 and 25, quote, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told it to you beforehand. Unquote. Now, the famous 19th century English priest, Father Frederick Faber, said the following about that. Quote, we must beware, then, of dangers from within. We must be upon our guard even against Catholic books, periodicals, journals, and pamphlets, however specious they may be. Our blessed Redeemer said of the false prophets of the last days that they should deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, we must remember that if all the manifestly good men were on one side and all the manifestly bad men on the other— there would be no danger of anyone, least of all the elect, being deceived by lying wonders. It is the good men, good ones, we must hope good still, who are to do the work of Antichrist, and so sadly to crucify afresh the Lord, whom they do more than profess to love. Bear in mind this feature of the last days, that their deceitfulness arises from good men being on the wrong side. Unquote. And we have that source linked for you in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at tradcast.org. Just scroll down to tradcast number 26 and click on that link there. So this is absolutely crucial. People need to stop being attached to particular individuals that they look up to as their guiding lights to safely navigate them through the current ecclesiastical nightmare. The only guiding light you can always rely on per Catholic dogma is the Pope. Well, we don't have one currently, so don't look for a substitute, because there is none. And for heaven's sake, please don't consider me your guiding light either, because I'm not. And that's one of the reasons why I don't even tell you my name, because it shouldn't matter. I'm not important here. I'm just trying to make known what the church teaches and has said about these things because the church is the ark of salvation and her guidance is safe to follow. Now, at this point, you have to ask yourself, of course, how much more obvious it can get. The month of October was particularly rough with that Amazon Senate and the worship of that disgusting Pachamama statue in the Vatican and all that. But that was just the latest implementation of the Abu Dhabi heresy that was proclaimed in February of this year in the United Arab Emirates, remember? Francis signed a declaration with a Muslim imam that said that God wills the diversity of religions just as he wills there to be a diversity of languages, races, and sexes. That is apostasy. 
And we've gone over that before, so I won't do that again here now. If you need more information on all that, please have a look at the show notes. We've got some links for you there. Then in September, Francis told the youth in Mozambique that religious differences are necessary. So that's pretty much the consequence of the Abu Dhabi heresy. If God wills there to be different religions, then differences between religions are necessary. And so if all of that is true, then what's to keep anyone from worshiping the pagan fertility goddess Pachamama in the Vatican, right? And so that's exactly what we saw. So, the apostasy is super obvious now. The question then is, how could it be a deception if it's obvious? How could something so obvious deceive anyone, especially the elect? And so, another question presents itself. Could it be that the real deception, the ultimate deception, is related to this apostasy, something else? Now, keep in mind, we're talking here about the devil's last hurrah. It's not going to be your run-of-the-mill kind of deception. It's going to be complex in nature and colossal in terms of magnitude. It'll be huge. It'll sway almost everyone. Now, I don't have any special divinely communicated insights here. I'm not an oracle, but I do have an educated opinion. The ultimate deception here could be not Francis and his henchmen, but precisely those who appear to be offering the antidote to Francis, but are doing so from within the Vatican II Church, the Novus Ordo sect. In other words, I'm talking about people such as the Novus Ordo cardinals and bishops, Raymond Burke, Gerhard Ludwig Müller, Robert Serra, Carlo Maria Viganò, Athanasius Schneider, and so forth, quite possibly including Benedict XVI himself. This whole intra-Novus Ordo anti-Francis movement is still developing, and we'll have to see what else happens. But don't consider it out of the question that one day a number of these resistors are going to have a coup inside the Vatican, drag Francis out of his Casa Santa Marta, and bring back Benedict XVI. I'm not saying I believe this will happen, only that we can't rule it out. We've seen a lot of odd things in the last six to seven years in the Vatican, wouldn't you say? And so, again, don't allow yourself to be distracted by whether the individuals I mentioned here are of goodwill or not, whether they're sincere, pious, meaning to be orthodox, or malicious and intentional deceivers. It simply doesn't matter. I mean, it matters to their souls, of course, but not to the objective reality of what's happening. Either way, the result is the same. Now, you know that if Francis were to be removed from the Vatican and Benedict put back in, that everyone who considers himself an orthodox, faithful, conservative, traditional Catholic would be cheering and celebrating, thinking that the great deception had finally come to an end. And yet, we know that all they would get is more Vatican II. Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, is 100% a man of the council. He is a modernist to the core. He just prefers to hide it a bit under pretty vestments and plumes of incense. So the only thing a bringing back of Benedict would accomplish is returning to the modernism of Ratzinger rather than the modernism of Bergoglio. Whoop-de-doo. 
But at this point, so many people are so tired of Francis that they'd welcome all the errors and heresies of Benedict with open arms. And just as a reminder, among the many dogmas and doctrines Benedict denies, we must include papal primacy as defined by Vatican I, original sin as a deprivation of sanctifying grace, the necessity of infant baptism, no salvation outside the church, the physical resurrection of Christ, and so forth. You can check out links in the show notes for documentation on that. This is serious business, but most people would not care as long as they're finally rid of Bergoglio and all his drivel about tenderness and existential peripheries. Now, who knows what's actually going to happen? There's really no predicting this thing. But that something big will happen in the very near future is pretty clear because Francis turns 83 this month and only has one lung, and Benedict is already 92. Meanwhile, the Vatican whistleblower-in-hiding Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò has given an exclusive interview to LifeSite, published on November 6th, and in it he said, quote, For all of us Catholics, the landscape in the Holy Church is becoming darker by the day. The ongoing progressive offensive portends a real revolution, not only in the way the Church is understood, but also in the apocalyptic images it gives to the whole world order. With deep sadness, we see the present pontificate marked by unusual facts, disconcerting behavior, and statements that contradict traditional doctrine, and which sow a general doubt in souls about what the Catholic Church is and what her true and immutable principles are. It feels as though we are in the grip of a religious chaos of gigantic proportion. If this satanic plan is successful, Catholics who adhere to it will in fact change religion, and the immense flock of our Lord Jesus Christ will be reduced to a minority." Unquote. Now again, I'm not interested in whether Viganò is being sincere or malicious or whatever. Let's just look at what he's saying. He's warning that Francis and his cronies are trying to change the Catholic religion. Okay, fair enough, but the problem with that is the implication that the Catholic religion hadn't already been changed before Francis as far back as Vatican II in the early 1960s. So, by warning that Francis is trying to change the Catholic religion, Viganò is actually indirectly reinforcing the belief that until Francis, the Catholic religion was fully intact, and that his predecessors, Benedict XVI, John Paul II, Paul VI, and John XXIII, had been orthodox. And that is the great deception. Yes, I know Francis makes them all look orthodox by comparison, but only by comparison. Francis' rejection of the true Catholic faith is simply more visible and to a greater degree than the others, but it's not of a different kind. So yeah, the best way to drive home the point that no substantial change in the Catholic religion occurred between 1958 when John XXIII was elected, and 2013, when Francis was elected, is to keep talking about how they are now trying to change the Catholic religion. It's really clever, diabolically clever. Now, Viganò, to his credit, has actually come out since and said that Vatican II as well has changed Catholic teaching. 
In a statement translated and published by Robert Moynihan of Inside the Vatican magazine, Viganò said, quote, The teachings that preceded Vatican II have been thrown to the winds as intolerant and obsolete. The comparison between the preconciliar magisterium and the new teachings of the Vatican II documents Nostra Aetate and Dignitatis Humanae, to mention only those, manifest a terrible discontinuity which must be acknowledged and which must be amended as soon as possible. Unquote. And this he published on uh, November 19th of this year in the Italian original at Aldo Maria Valli's blog. So, perhaps Vigano is indeed going to take an anti-Vatican II stance from now on. He'd then also have to criticize, though, the post-conciliar magisterium, especially Paul VI and John Paul II. But both of those are canonized saints now in the Vatican II Church, so I'm not sure how he's going to do that. But be that as it may, the point is, the Catholic religion was changed substantially at the Second Vatican Council in the early 1960s. And if Vatican II was wrong, so were the supposed popes that implemented and developed its teachings. We have to reject any endeavors or projects that directly or indirectly promote the idea that the Novus Ordo Magisterium was Orthodox until Francis came along in 2013. In other words, quoting Vatican II or the Novus Ordo Catechism or an encyclical by John Paul II against Francis actually does more harm than good. Now, I know that some will say that that's at least a step in the right direction. But I say no, it's not. It's a step in the wrong direction. Opposing Francis with Vatican II only helps to cement the lie that Vatican II was orthodox it actually legitimizes that abominable council. Now, if you've convinced the whole world that Francis is a heretic, and not the Pope, but at the price of legitimizing Vatican II and the post-conciliar magisterium through 2013, you've accomplished absolutely nothing. In fact, you've made people believe in Vatican II all the more. So yeah, there are different ways in which people will be deceived about this. The worst kind of deception, though, is the kind in which people are trapped thinking they've escaped the deception. And it seems to me that this is where it's headed. France's apostasy is so obvious that the real deception will be found in the false opposition against him. That's just my opinion, but it's not unreasonable. So, Speaking of the deception of the false opposition, let's have a look at some of the nonsense that has recently been proposed as being legitimate ways of responding to France's apostasy without having to draw that unwelcome because inconvenient conclusion that Francis isn't the Pope. And of course, that's a bit of a slippery slope, you know. Once you say Francis can't be the Pope because he's not a Catholic and has done things a true Pope is incapable of doing, well, then, of course, you have to apply the same standard to his Novus Ordo predecessors. And before you know it, you'll be concluding that your indult mass isn't valid, your marriage annulment is toast, you've never received valid absolution in your life, and you're going to have to cancel all-night adoration because it's really just bread in that monstrance. So, I understand that that's not a fun picture to entertain, and I can totally sympathize with anyone not wanting to go there. But sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do, 
at the end of the day, the reality of it is what it is. And if your confessor isn't a valid priest, believe me, you're not going to want to find that out at your particular judgment. You're going to want to know that now. Anyway, Father Jürgen Wegner is the District Superior of the United States District of the Lefebvreist Society of St. Pius X, and in January 2019, he wrote the following in his newsletter. He begins by quoting the prophet Zacharias, chapter 13, verse 7, Smite the shepherd, and his flock shall scatter. So upon the common folk my vengeance shall fall. And Father Wagner says this, Quote, and who are the shepherds here on earth? They are none other than the bishops, including the heir of St. Peter, the Pope, who has been tasked by Jesus Christ to oversee the universal church. Many of the shepherds, including the pontiffs of the past half century, have been struck. They have been struck by modernism, liberalism, relativism, and indifferentism. There is a crisis in leadership. In the wake of this striking, a tragic number of sheep have been scattered through defection to another confession, outright apostasy, or in the formation of schismatic groups propped up by novel theories of how the church can continue to abide with no shepherd at all. Unquote. Ooh, <laughs> now there we have a little dig at Sedevacantism at the end. Did you notice? Well, I think that's ironic since he just said that the shepherd would be struck. And then he complains about people who recognize that that means the shepherd will be dead. He'll be gone, absent, not to be found. Oh, well, what Father District Superior is doing here is giving a novel meaning to the term struck. He's saying that it means the Pope will defect into heresy, apostasy, whatever, but still be the Pope. And yet our Lord applied the words of Zacharias to himself in Matthew 26, 31. And obviously we know how our blessed Lord was struck. And it wasn't a defecting into heresy or apostasy. It was the giving of his life for his sheep. And it stands to reason that if our Lord's vicar imitates his master in all things, then at one point he too will be struck in the same or a similar way and that's exactly what's prophesied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where St. Paul speaks of the restraining power, the papacy, being taken out of the way so that the mystery of iniquity can prevail for a short while, using the operation of error and punishment for people's sins, especially their lack of love for the truth. That the Pope himself cannot defect into heresy, at least not without immediately losing the pontificate, is taught by Vatican I, Dogmatic Constitution Pastor Eternus, Chapter 4. Quote, this gift of truth and never-failing faith was therefore divinely conferred on Peter and his successors in the sea, so that they might discharge their exalted office for the salvation of all, and so that the whole flock of Christ might be kept away by them from the poisonous food of error and be nourished with the sustenance of heavenly doctrine. Thus the tendency to schism is removed and the whole church is preserved in unity and resting on its foundation can stand firm against the gates of hell." Unquote. You can find that also in Denzinger, 1837, though the wording there is a bit different because it's a different translation. 
So, exit Father Wagner. Talk about false opposition. Next, we need to take a look at an argument by Father Thomas Wynandi. If the name sounds familiar, there's a reason for that. Wynandi is a Novus Ordo Capuchin who was a member of the Vatican's International Theological Commission and who was theological advisor for the Doctrinal Committee of the United States Conference of Useless Novus Ordo Bishops. But that's probably not why you've heard of him. You've heard of him because he's one of the few voices in Novus Ordo land who have publicly challenged Francis. On July 31, 2017, he sent a letter to Francis that was later made public in which he basically slaps Francis on the wrist a little for all the scandal he keeps giving in terms of doctrinal errors, appointing bad bishops, confusing people, and so on. Well, anyway, on October 8th of this year, Wainandi released a fairly brief essay on the website The Catholic Thing entitled Pope Francis and Schism. After giving a brief summary of the problems with Francis, he declares, quote, What the Church will end up with, then, is a Pope who is the Pope of the Catholic Church and simultaneously the de facto leader, for all practical purposes, of a schismatic Church. Because he is the head of both, the appearance of one Church remains, while in fact there are two. The only phrase that I can find to describe the situation is internal papal schism. For the Pope, even as Pope, will effectively be the leader of a segment of the Church that through its doctrine, moral teaching, and ecclesial structure is for all practical purposes schismatic. This is the real schism that is in our midst and must be faced, but I do not believe Pope Francis is in any way afraid of the schism. As long as he is in control, he will, I fear, welcome it, for he sees the schismatic element as the new paradigm for the future church, unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't make it up. A true pope who is the head of the Catholic Church and, at the same time, of a schismatic non-Catholic sect. So I guess vicar of Christ and Antichrist at the same time. Now, of course, Wainandi loaded up his assertions with adverbs, effectively and for all practical purposes and whatnot. And those are his get-out-of-jail-free card. If he gets called out on it theologically, he can always get off on that technicality. Now, qualifications like that are fine to make in principle. But Wainandi doesn't tell us in straight terms what he does mean. He says what it is effectively, but he doesn't say what it is actually. And the funny thing is that he then says, this is the real schism that is in our midst. Ah, so it is a real schism after all, and not just an effective one. Oops. So Wynandi claims that there is or will be an internal papal schism. Yeah, well, the problem is that there can be no such thing because the Catholic Church is one, unified by definition, and the Pope is the principle of that unity. Now, the principle of unity cannot be divided, but of course, Wynandi, being a Vatican II man, thinks of everything in terms of elements, and so he locates a schismatic element in the Pope— so that he can be both the Pope of the Catholic Church and the head of a false religion. So I guess that's how Francis keeps the gates of hell from prevailing then. 
That's awesome. You know, Wainandi is considered top-notch orthodox. Well, if that's what the orthodox theologians put out, who needs heretics? The inmates are running the asylum in the Vatican II sect. Francis with his henchmen on the one side and the false opposition on the other. Three years ago, the ever-present bishop, Athanasius Schneider, also advanced a silly idea about schism when he claimed in a French internet TV program that one can be in schism with Christ by being subject to the Pope. Yes, you can find the link to that in the show notes if you want to get the full story on that. But Wynandi one-ups Schneider now by saying that the Pope can be in schism with himself. I mean, this really takes the cake. So, folks, you can definitely file Wynandi's argument in your anything but Sedevacantism folder. These people make it up as they go along, and it's funny, but somehow the conclusion that they come to is always that that blaspheming heretical idolater from Buenos Aires is a true pope. And people eat it up. They don't care how absurd it is. As long as they can still have their pope and beat him, all is well. That's what they want. That's what they get. It's backwards theology. Start with a desired conclusion and then figure out what you have to say that will conveniently lead to that conclusion. I've had it with these people. And here's another one. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, retired college professor for Novus Ordo Theology, who spends his time now freelancing and giving lectures and stuff. He wrote an article two years ago that just recently came to my attention, entitled, But the Pope Said So, Excuses That May Not Help on Judgment Day. In that little essay, Kwasniewski presents a fictional dialogue between Christ and a soul at its particular judgment, based on past controversies involving true popes, specifically Liberius, Honorius I, and John XXII. Of course, what he writes is totally biased and founded on his own errors about the papacy, and is actually blasphemous because he puts words into our Lord's mouth that are abominable, such as referring to a pope as a false prophet and teacher. But of course, our blessed Lord established the papacy with the guarantee that it could never lead the faithful astray. And in fact, the very title of the piece is already misleading. The issue is not that the Pope said so. That's already a straw man. The issue is adherence to the papal magisterium. Now, according to the very traditional Catholic doctrine that Kwasniewski claims to want to defend and uphold, Catholics are bound, under pain of mortal sin, to assent to everything a pope teaches in his magisterium. And the very scenario that Kwasniewski proposes, based on his own tendentious presentation of history, of the papal magisterium misleading souls into heresy or other harmful error, such a scenario is ruled out by the divine promises of Christ. And that's why what Kwasniewski did is blasphemous talk about things that won't help on Judgment Day. In his 1833 encyclical Quo Graviora, paragraph 10, Pope Gregory XVI asked rhetorically, quote, Should the Church be able to order, yield to, or permit those things which tend toward the destruction of souls and the disgrace and detriment of the sacrament instituted by Christ? Unquote. 
In 1885, Pope Leo XIII wrote in his encyclical Immortale Dei, paragraph 41, quote, Whatever the Roman pontiffs have hitherto taught or shall hereafter teach must be held with a firm grasp of mind, and so often as occasion requires, must be openly professed, unquote. And in the encyclical Satis Cognitum, issued in 1896, paragraph 9, the same Pope Leo taught, quote, Wherefore, as appears from what has been said, Christ instituted in the Church a living, authoritative, and permanent magisterium, which by his own power he strengthened, by the spirit of truth he taught, and by miracles confirmed. He willed and ordered, under the gravest penalties, that its teachings should be received as if they were his own." So now you see how important it is whether Bergoglio is a true pope or not. If you were a true pope, it would be over. Then Catholicism would be false. (laughs) In which case, he would be a false pope too, because then all popes will be false, because then the papacy would be false. But don't worry, Catholicism is not false. Christ did not lie. Bergoglio simply isn't the Pope. So, unlike what Kwasniewski tells you, the error people fall into is not in following the man they believe to be the Pope. The error is to think that Bergoglio is one. And Kwasniewski is simply out of his mind to argue that our blessed Lord would abrade souls for following a true Pope. And that has nothing to do with the excuse, the Pope said so. It has everything to do with the fact that Christ's church teaches that we must, under pain of sin, adhere to everything the Pope teaches in his capacity as Pope, which certainly includes everything that appears in the official documents. Now, if you want to know what excuse is really not going to fly at the Last Judgment, I submit it's rejecting papal teaching in favor of a blog post by Peter Kwasniewski. You are listening to Tradcast, the traditional Roman Catholic podcast with an attitude. But hey, it's the right attitude, so it's all good. All right, we are definitely due for a short little break. And when we come back, there will be a lot more Tradcast. Tradcast. What is true restoration, and why is it the answer for you and the Catholic world at large? On no other internet platform can you access a treasury of Catholic educational material, mostly in audio format, covering such courses as the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas, Catholic Spirituality, Sacred Scripture, Catholic History, Papal Encyclicals, the true nature and consequence of the Second Vatican Council, and much, much more. Most talks, videos, and transcripts are designed by leading clerics of our time, many of whom are lecturers at the world's top English-speaking traditional Catholic seminary, to provide the most beneficial information for our times. The interviews are delivered in a specific style to be captivating and comfortably understood by the average layman, and True Restoration's extensive repository collectively provides all that is required for acquiring the most comprehensive religious online education. 
With the option of a full annual membership or monthly subscription, you can easily access this unique and extensive, spiritually enriching and deeply instructive knowledge base to aid your journey to true wisdom and understanding. For Catholic teaching at its online best, visit truerestoration.org. That's T-R-U-E, as in the one true faith, R-E-S-T-O-R-A-T-I-O-N, as in to restore all things in Christ, dot org. If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Trapcast. The views expressed on this podcast are correct, and you may not be ready to admit it yet, but that is the reason you're listening, and that's okay. Trapcast 26 continues now with our second segment, and uh, we'll get back into it in just a moment. But before we do, I'd like to mention that we're approaching the end of the year, and uh, if you're in the United States and still looking for a tax deduction, please remember that the Novels Art of Watch website and this podcast can only happen the way they do because of people like you supporting it financially. Uh, People from anywhere in the world can contribute in different ways, including by PayPal, by a check or money order, credit or debit card, or direct debit to bank account. And if you're in the United States, your donation is tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Just head on over to novosordowatch.org slash donate. But enough, enough of the money talk. Let's get back into things we still got plenty to talk about. For example, I'd like to say something about a tweet that was sent out by Steve Skojek, the editor of 1peter5.com, on September 10th of this year. And the tweet says this, quote, I learned tonight that a social media friend lost a one-year-old child last night. No idea what happened, but no indication she was sick. None of the arguments we're having here matter. None of them. Unquote. I have no doubt that the trauma and pain one experiences on losing a one-year-old child are beyond description. There's no question that that is unimaginable to anyone who hasn't experienced it himself. In no wise do I mean to trivialize that in what I'm about to say. And I actually know a little bit about this sort of thing from my own experience because Although I've never lost a young child, I have lost a sibling at an age when that isn't supposed to happen. 
So with that in mind, let's evaluate what Skojek said in that tweet. His comment was, none of the arguments we're having here matter. None of them. Although it's understandable on a human level that that might be someone's gut reaction at hearing of such an emotionally difficult thing, uh, what he said there is very wrong and very dangerous. The arguments he's referring to, of course, are theological controversies about Francis, about recognize and resist versus sedevacantism, about the Mass and the sacraments, tradition versus Vatican II, and so on. Those issues are of the highest importance because they pertain to the life of the soul, to the life of grace, and ultimately to eternal salvation. Skojek's comment reveals that he hasn't understood that, or perhaps he thinks of all this as just, you know, playing. In fact, when you look at the theological junk published on his site, 1peter5.com, you really do get the impression that he and his other writers think that sacred theology is the private intellectual playground of anyone with an opinion. Case in point, Eric Sammons. Sammons published the article, Is Francis the Pope? on 1 Peter 5 on October 29th, and it was so poor in terms of scholarship and theology that I couldn't help but write a powerful rebuttal, and you can find that linked in the show notes. The rebuttal is called, Is Francis the Pope? A Devastating Refutation of Eric Sammons, and that was posted at novelsordowatch.org slash wire on November 6th. Now, Sammons actually has a master's degree in Novus Ordo Theology from the Franciscan University of Steubenville. That is really scary. Anyway, to get back to Steve Skojek's tweet about how none of these things matter because an acquaintance of his lost a child, by saying that, he makes temporal life more important than eternal life. He just declared natural life more important than supernatural life. The life of nature more important than the life of grace. That is naturalism. It's modernism. It turns all religious truth into an opinion, essentially. He basically just said that before the tragedies of human life, all religious truth must bow and bend. What he said is very subversive of religion, as though ultimately these things didn't matter because people experience tragedy. That dear one-year-old child, if he was baptized, is now in heaven. And if he was not baptized, he is in limbo now, enjoying a natural happiness for eternity. But the people misled by Bergoglio, the people who imbibe the errors of the modern world thanks to Vatican II, are in great danger of eternal damnation. Now, I don't think Skojak was fully aware of what he was saying and what the implications would be, but I wanted to address that because the tweet is still out there for all to see, and a lot of people will be swayed by emotion and agree with him that the theological controversies of our day are ultimately not that big of a deal. Well, they are a big deal because, to put it in one memorable little phrase, Catholicism has consequences. All right, so much for that. Uh, Next, we need to look at something the Frankster said to a group of academics on November 14th. He was uh, speaking to them about wisdom, among other things. And here's what he said, quote, 
For us Christians, wisdom is Jesus crucified and risen, but his light illuminates all men, all religions, all cultures, all authentic exercises of humanity." Unquote. So, um, here we have, first of all, a bit of an ambiguity. I don't know how he meant it, but one can easily understand him to be saying that Jesus Christ is wisdom only for us, for Catholics, and not wisdom objectively and necessarily for everyone. So, he's making Christ relative. For us, wisdom is Jesus Christ crucified. But for Muslims, wisdom is the Quran. For the apostate Jews, it's the Talmud. For Buddhists, it's Buddha, and so forth. Secondly, Francis claims that Christ's light illuminates all religions. Now, that is blasphemy. Notice he didn't simply say that Christ illuminates all men, which is a truth found in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, verse 9, inasmuch as all true light comes from Christ, and he refuses it to no one who sincerely asks for it and does not place an obstacle to it. No, Francis said that Christ's light enlightens all religions, and that is entirely in line with his Abu Dhabi heresy that we already talked about in the first segment, in which he declared that God wills the diversity of religions. And it's also consonant with Vatican II, which declares in principle that there's a little bit of the true church in every religion, and as a consequence of that, all religions are salvific to a greater or lesser extent. That is heresy. A religion is either true or it's false, either wholly true or wholly false, because every religion was either founded by God or founded by man. Now, if it was founded by man, it is a false religion. And if it was founded by God, it is the true religion, the only true religion, because God only founded one true religion. And it's absurd, heretical, and blasphemous to suggest that God would illuminate false religions with his truth, because that actually would give them credibility and make them even more dangerous. But that's typical Vatican II theology for you. Nothing is black and white anymore. It's all just different elements, different shades, different gradations of gray. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, St. Paul asks rhetorically, What fellowship hath light with darkness? And I guess Francis would respond, Well, there's at least a little bit of light there. And soon they'll probably be applying their elements doctrine to God himself and say that the true God subsists in the Trinity, but exists also in elements in other gods. You know, partially and imperfectly, also in Hindu idols, in pantheism, in animism, in Unitarianism, and so on. If you follow these developments in Novos Orderland closely, you can see that it's getting more and more obvious where this is all headed. They're trying to blend together all religions into one, one big apostate sect that will agree on the lowest common denominator, that of humanity, fraternity, works of charity, and leave all the rest to everyone's dearly held traditions and subjective convictions, which cannot claim for themselves 
to be objectively true or valid, though, because that would be trying to impose them on everyone else as though we alone had the truth. That's where this is going. All religions are fine. All are valid. It's all the same God, just experienced in different ways. And so, let's just agree to disagree on specific doctrines and just unite on the level of human dignity and fraternity while always being in dialogue. That is Antichrist doctrine. And Francis, as always, is its happy cheerleader. By the way, in that same speech to academics, which you can find linked in the show notes, the papal pretender also claimed that there is a covenant between man and inanimate matter. He said, quote, The covenant is the keystone of creation and history, as the Word of God teaches us. The covenant between God and men, the covenant between generations, the covenant between peoples and cultures— the covenant in school between teachers and learners, the covenant between man, animals, plants, and even the inanimate realities that make our common home beautiful and colorful. Unquote. What? You didn't know you had a covenant going with rocks and dirt and oil? Well, you'd better remember that next time you're outdoors, because if you break that covenant... You know what that's called, right? That's a sin, buddy. And for that kind of sin, there's not going to be easy forgiveness from Bergoglio. Not like bigamy or unrepentant adultery, where you can get your discernment process and accompaniment schedule and all that. Oh no, breaking your covenant with what makes Mother Earth colorful, that may almost be as bad as proselytism. And you know what that living covenant with the earth does? Regolio tells us in the same speech, he says, quote, to open the paths of the future to a new civilization that embraces humanity and the cosmos in universal brotherhood, unquote. And there is your fraternity again. Ladies and gentlemen, this has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is all just Masonic and political garbage. All right, time's just about up now for this podcast, but I do still have something a bit fun, a bit on the lighter side. Okay, let's take a look, uh, or rather a listen, uh, at how Michael Voris of Church Militant has been dealing with John Allen. John Allen is a very competent journalist who is an expert on the Vatican. The problem is he's not a Catholic, but a modernist. He considers himself a Catholic guy, I suppose, but he's just a liberal. Novosordo. For many years, he wrote for the so-called National Catholic Reporter, an ultra-left-wing publication that supports women's ordination and stuff like that. A few years back, he joined the Boston Globe and now writes for Crux at cruxnow.com. Now listen to how Michael Voris blasts John Allen on two recent episodes of his Vortex program. The first clip I'm going to play is from October 1st, 2019, the Vortex episode entitled Propaganda War. Crook's website was founded by John Allen, originally in concert with the Boston Globe as an attempt to capitalize and monetize Pope Francis news. When that joint business venture failed, 
Allen was able to rescue the flailing entity by turning in part to the Knights of Columbus for grants and subsidies. Allen is much better known for his long career at the National Catholic Reporter, another rag full of dissenters attempting to dismantle the church. More than 50 years ago, the editors were told they could not call themselves Catholic by their local bishop. They, in essence, told him to drop dead, and they've remained as defined ever since. Allen prospered in that environment at National Catholic Reporter. Allen, in fact, is so Catholic-like, predominantly liberal, that Bishop Robert, no one really goes to hell, Barron, actually brought Allen on board as a regular contributor to his self-promoting vehicle, Word on Fire. So here we can immediately discern a joining of the forces, a nexus, the Vatican, Crook's website, America Magazine, and Word on Fire. All right, so far so good. What he just said there is typical Michael Vohr stuff, so nothing unusual about that. And we have another clip that sounds very similar. At some point, it became public information that John Allen, although married, separated from his wife and now lives with a concubine. And this is what Voris is referring to in this next clip, taken from the Vortex of October 30th, 2019, entitled, Reports Are. Let's listen. A few weeks ago, Bishop Robert Barron brought Allen on board as a contributor to his Word on Fire self-promotion outfit. So, here is a Catholic man objectively committing adultery who reports nonstop on Vatican affairs, and we're supposed to think his reporting can be trusted. His wife can't trust him. Why should we? And frankly, this tidy little arrangement between Allen and Barron calls into serious question Barron's legitimacy. Allen's dalliances are a very poorly kept secret in church reporting circles. It's a little hard to believe that Barron didn't know anything about them, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. If he didn't, he does now. So watch and see what Barron does. Allen has always been suspect in his coverage of church affairs, having written for the notorious National Catholic Reporter for years and years, a rag promoting nonstop dissent in a hundred different ways. But now since he's having his own affair, his coverage of church affairs is even more unreliable. How can any Catholic reporter actively living against church teaching give you the straight dope on church teaching? He and others are not computers. They are human beings composed of body and soul and consciences and emotions and feelings. It goes beyond belief to think that their own convictions motivated by willful sin do not spill over into their presentations. Of course they do. Catholic reporters reporting to Catholics should be living as Catholics. Anything less is just unacceptable. All right, so now we've got a pretty good idea of what Michael Voris thinks of John Allen, not so much as a private individual, but in his role as a reporter covering Vatican and other church news. And as we just heard Voris say, Allen has always been suspect and his coverage of church matters. And yet, the following is a clip from Voris's program Miked Up, of February 10th, 2015, entitled The Uncatholic Media. Voris had actually invited Allen on his show to interview him, not to argue with him or take issue with his work at all, but rather as a pundit to discuss the secular media's poor coverage of Catholicism. Voris and Allen were chatting almost like they were buddies. 
and they ended their conversation on a very chummy note. Yeah, that's a very good point. John, we got to wrap it up here. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, uh, we'll be in Rome a little while if we're there. Uh, hoping we can go out and grab a, grab a bite or something. Always happy to treat you to a plate of Amatriciana, Michael, anytime. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, yeah, that didn't sound too critical, did it? There was not one critical word about or to Alan in that entire segment. Now, perhaps I'm being too nitpicky here, but it seems to me Voris owes an apology either to his viewers or to John Allen. You can listen to and watch the full Voris Allen conversation and also the other programs that we played clips from in their entirety at the links given in the show notes. Okay, before we conclude this Tradcast, I have a quick announcement to make. I did not forget, of course, about the review I've been promising of Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. Originally, I wanted to make it part of this podcast, but I've decided to dedicate an entire Tradcast to just that. So it'll be a special edition Tradcast number 27, and I'm planning on that to be released as early as January. So shouldn't be too long of a wait, and you won't regret it. In the meantime, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, and uh, if you listened all the way to the end, then you probably did, why don't you tell your friends and family about it? Just don't keep it a secret. And if you didn't like it, well, you know, we all have our crosses. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you.